Good morning. So we're, uh, we're second week into a sermon series we are doing on relationships based on Paul's letters to the Corinthians because they, they had a lot of relationship issues. They had a lot of problems. And so Paul writes this letter to them and uh, kind of is, is helping them figure some of this stuff out. And we know that a lot of the issues that we have in relationships revolve around conflicts of various kinds and the way those conflicts are resolved. Uh, this, is, this comes up every time I do premarital counseling with a couple is uh, people struggle with this. Like how do, you, how do you figure things out when you're at odds with each other? And this isn't going to be a marriage series. I said that last week, but there are going to be things that are applicable every week. So I'll start by telling you a story about an especially dumb conflict Carolyn and I had. And just in case you're wondering, Craig's gonna get in a lot of trouble for this. I do have permission to tell this story. I've cleared it ahead of time with the boss, so it's all good. Uh, years ago, we got really into a board game called Carcassonne. Anyone ever played Carcassonne or know Carcassonne? A few of you. So um, Carcassonne, great two-player game, actually. You can play it with kids. I highly recommend it. When we were dating and engaged, we got really, really into this game. We were playing it all the time. We were buying expansion packs. We brought it on our honeymoon to Mexico. We come, we come home two weeks or so after we, we come home from the honeymoon. We're playing in our apartment that we were renting in Richmond. And um, one of the things that you could do at Carcassonne, you're, you're placing these tiles, those, those tiles, you're placing them on the board, and there's a certain way you, you could place a tile and either share or steal all of these points from another player, points that they've been working hard to accumulate all game. And it's not a sportsman-like move, but it's legal. You can do it. And something you may already know about me is that I, I'm fairly competitive. I, I like to win. That whole saying, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. I've struggled with that, that saying in my life. Sometimes I've resonated more with Ricky Bobby in the movie Talladega Nights. If you're not first, you're last. That's a terrible mindset. I know it is. Progress have, has been made, I, I hope. But in this moment, as I was playing Carcassonne with Carolyn, I turned into Ricky Bobby. And I did the move. I did the move, placed the tile, stole all of these points right at the end of the game. Craig wins. Craig is victorious. Huge win. Not a win for our marriage, however. <laughs> Carolyn did not like this move at all. So what she did was she took her arm and with one angry swoop across the table, scattered the pieces, sent them flying all over the apartment. They liked that. They liked that, Carolyn. And I don't, think, I don't think really much was said even in that moment. I think it was just stunned silence. I don't think we picked up the pieces, right? We didn't pick up the pieces for a couple of days. They just, they were like a perpetual reminder of what had happened. And I'll tell you this, in 12 years of marriage, we have never again played Carcassonne as a two-player game. <laughs> that, that was literally the last time we played as, as, uh, with others since. But yeah, and I don't do that move anymore. Um, that's, I mean, obviously that's kind of a, uh, that's a silly conflict, right? It's a, it's a board game. We all know that we endure conflicts that are far more serious and more consequential than that. Conflicts in our marriage or our family or friendships where the metaphorical pieces don't get picked up for a long time, if ever, where, where things never really get back to normal. And, and in the most tragic of cases, those conflicts become so unresolvable, apparently, that they get brought to courts and other government authorities to try to sort out 
And that's actually what was happening in Corinth in the first century in the church there. So let's pray, and then we're going to open up to 1 Corinthians 6. I thank you so much, God, for this morning. What a joyous morning it has already been to see Ryan, Lord, testify to the new life that you have given him. And we pray, Lord, that as we spend this time in the scriptures, that you would speak to us. I pray particularly, Lord, for those of us who are experiencing relational pain, relational conflicts, and and we don't really know what to do with that. I pray you'd speak to us today. I pray you'd soften hearts today. I pray that today, Lord, might be an important step towards true restoration and unity in our relationships. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8. If you got your Bible, you can open it up there. Paul says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and you do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So first, let's let's set out the context here. Paul is obviously referring to a, a lawsuit that's taken place in the Corinthian church where you've got one brother, probably brother, maybe sister, but one person taking another to court. And the first century world, there were, some, there were some similarities with the court system back then as today, but some pretty, some pretty big differences as well. We, we kind of assume that you have certain legal rights in our world, right? Those, I, I've just seen it in shows, but that's what the cops read out to you when they arrest you, right? Here, here are your rights. You assume you, you kind of come before the court, and there's at least the hope that there's equality before the law, that justice is blind, that kind of thing. That was not the case in first century Rome. Uh, Rome was a status-obsessed world. And, and if you had wealth and if you had power, you could very much use that to your advantage in the courts. And I know that's the case today too, but it was more blatant back then. You, uh, you had bribes were totally acceptable. Lawyers were extraordinarily wealthy and so only available to the very wealthy. And so again, if you had a wealthy individual who wanted to really clean somebody out, get vengeance on them, taking them to court was a great way to do it. And if we kind of are reconstructing the situation in Corinth, this would be my best guess about what's happening, is that you do have a richer member of the church who feels like another brother in the church has defrauded him, cheated him in some way, and so he's going, I'm I'm gonna take you out. I'm I'm gonna wipe you clean. I'm bringing you to court. I'm, I'm suing you. And so Paul addresses this in this chapter. And the first thing we have to notice, actually, is that for Paul, his, his big concern, he is concerned about how this dispute has come up, but his big concern is with how it's being dealt with. That's especially what he's dealing with. Because Paul recognizes that there are going to be, there are going to be disputes, there are going to be issues in the church, 
right? He says, if any of you has a dispute, Paul recognized that there would be personality differences, misunderstandings, injustices, real and perceived in the church. He experienced that. In Acts chapter 15, we have the story of Paul and Barnabas. They're close friends, co-partners in, in the mission, and they have a severe disagreement because of Mark. One thinks that they should take Mark with them. The other says, no, he's not trustworthy, and they end up parting ways. They have this, this significant disagreement about vision. Now, the good thing there is that that Disagreement doesn't stop God from working. God actually uses both Paul and Barnabas to multiply the gospel ministry. Same kind of thing, actually, I thought about in a movie we watched recently called Jesus Revolution. Anyone seen Jesus Revolution yet? Just a few of you. I want to do a public showing here at the bridge. It's so, so good. Even just for the Southern California ocean and warmth. And it's just like you put yourself, oh, you're like, oh, somewhere it's not raining right now. Anyways, that's beside the point. I love this movie. It's about the, the Jesus people movement, the hippies in the late 60s and early 70s who came to faith in Jesus in, in Southern California. But at one point in the movie and in real life, it's, it's a real story, Lonnie Frisbee, he's the charismatic hippie preacher, he ends up at being asked to leave by the pastor of the church where a lot of this is happening, Chuck Smith, because Lonnie Frisbee wanted to make everything a spectacle, Everything was kind of more about the show. Chuck Smith wanted to keep it more grounded. And so there was, there was a difference in vision. They ended up splitting. But years later, God was still working through both of them. And in fact, Chuck Smith preached the eulogy at Lonnie Frisbee's funeral. The point is, there are going to be differences in personality and vision and that kind of thing. That, that happens. The main thing is, is how we deal with those, with those divisions, with those potential conflicts. And what was happening in Corinth, Paul had major problems with. Major problems with, with them bringing this case to court. And he had a few issues with this. The first issue is that they were bringing the, these matters before judges who had a totally different perspective on the world. Different foundation for understanding the world than a follower of Jesus. We'll get to this later on, but Paul says, look guys, you should have people in your church who are wise enough and mature enough to settle these things without bringing them before a judge who isn't, isn't in line with the kingdom of God. And so his judgments are not going to be in line with the kingdom of God. We were watching a show years ago called The Good Wife. I don't know if anyone's ever seen The Good Wife. Uh, it was a network show, not a Christian show at all, but it was a network show, and it actually treated and portrayed Christians more fairly than most shows that we've seen and remember, it, so it's a lawyer show, and one episode, there are these two neighboring Christian farmers, and one is bringing the other to court because uh, he had patented some seeds, and the other farmer, he was accusing him of kind of taking those seeds, keeping them for himself, and not paying for them. And so he's bringing him to court. And, but but in, the, in the court, as I guess often happens, the lawyers are just going at each other, you know, it's, just, it's getting really hostile. And the two Christian farmers realize this is not at all what we want. This is not, this is not at all going to help us. And so they decide to go an entirely different route. They, they hire a Christian mediator. And so now they're sitting across from each other at a table with a Christian mediator. But I, I don't remember, this is a while ago, so I don't remember the plot line. I don't, I don't know why the lawyers were still there, but they were. The lawyers... We're still there with the Christian mediator, 
And it was so funny because they're still trying to do the, the law court thing, right? They're going like, objection, objection. And the Christian mediator is like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not, that's not what we do here. And they're trying to catch each other in, in the other's words. And, and, and eventually the two Christian farmers settle things on their own because they're working towards reconciliation. The mediator's working towards reconciliation. And the lawyers are just flustered because this is not at all how things are supposed to work. I think it was just a beautiful illustration of the incompatibility between the ways of the world and the kingdom of God when it comes to resolving these kinds of disputes. So if we kind of step outside the legal world, the, the relational conflict resolution principle here would simply be what, what, are, what do you go to when, when there is a dispute? Where, where do you turn for wisdom? Who do you turn to for wisdom? Do you go to people whose ways of thinking are totally out of line with the kingdom of God? Or are you looking to those who are submitting to God's wisdom? That's Paul's issue here. You're going to somebody who doesn't, isn't even on the same wavelength as you. Second issue Paul mentions is that by bringing this case to court, they're actually giving Jesus a bad name. In verse 6, he kind of laments that they are bringing this, they're accusing one another, taking advantage of one another in front of the watching world to see this in front of unbelievers, he says. And this, this is a theme that we see again and again throughout the scriptures, that God's people, their conduct, their relationships are significantly responsible for God's reputation in the world. And that's kind of terrifying, isn't it? But that's what we see in the scriptures. Jesus in, in John chapter 13 says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A few chapters later, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he prays that they would be brought to complete unity because then the world will know, he says to his father, that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How does the world know who God is? The world knows who God is by the character and the conduct of his people. We're, we're made in his image. We're supposed to reflect him. We're supposed to show the world what he looks like. And so what's happening in Corinth is that you've got one brother defrauding and cheating another, and that brother accusing that one in front of the courts. And now people are going to look at that and say, oh, that's what the church is like. That's what Jesus is like? No, thank you. I don't really need that in my life. And we see this on repeat throughout history, don't we? We see people who have been called by the name of Jesus, who live and speak in ways, and I can look at my life, and I can see it in my life at times too, where we have lived and spoken in ways that ended up turning people off from the gospel because they, were, they, they, just, they didn't represent Jesus. But that's what, that's what people know about the church, about Jesus, is, is what they see in his people. This, this, is, this is tragic. May, may it not be. May it not be here at the bridge. May we be a church that truly loves one another, that is, is soft and open to the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and may we be a church that even when we fail, because we inevitably do fail, that even there we would represent what Jesus is like by, well, it's not that Jesus needs to repent and, and confess and forgive, but that we would show the world what softness of heart looks like. We would show the world who God is like in terms of receiving his grace, confessing and repenting and turning back to him. 
may we be an accurate representation of who God is in the way that we deal with these disputes. This is a huge deal. And the third issue that Paul has with how they're approaching this is that their, their, their conduct doesn't reflect God's character because their hearts are skewed. In verses 7 and 8, Paul laments that they seem to be more concerned with their own rights, with their own status, with their own financial well-being than they are with the kingdom of God. And I would say that this is where relationships almost always go off the rails in the church. Whenever people are more concerned with proving themselves right, with making sure that their status, their cause is advancing, when they become more concerned with what I'm entitled to, this is what we kind of talked about last week, right? That, that rights and freedoms and so on kind of thing. When they're more concerned about me getting what I'm entitled to, what I think I deserve, instead of the benefit of others, instead of the benefit of the church as a whole, that's where things go off the rails. And so for these two brothers, for them to to be restored, they both, they both need repentance. Both of them need to have their hearts transformed and brought into alignment with the kingdom of God. And it is both sides. It really is. Paul addresses both sides. He says to the brother who has been defrauded, who is prosecuting the other, he says to him, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Which is a profoundly countercultural thing to say, isn't it? I mean, we, we rebel against that inside of ourselves so much. This idea that you would let someone walk over you. I mean, we just, everything in us screams against that. But we cannot get away from the fact that in the New Testament, people's willingness to endure suffering, even for doing what's right, is one of the most Christ-like and Christ-conforming things a believer can do. Peter is one example in his letter in the New Testament. He says, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Look at Jesus. Come back to this at the end, but look at Jesus. He suffers on the cross he was, he was completely innocent, clean, pure, yet he suffered for us. And so Peter says, follow in his footsteps. Be willing to suffer injustice because it, because it shapes you and forms you in his image. Because it shows others a glimpse of what Jesus is like. It's actually an opportunity. When you suffer injustice, it's actually an opportunity to be sanctified and to bear witness to the kingdom of God. Again, I know, we, we push against that, and the, the brother in Corinth did as well, but when we do, we are missing a crucial opportunity to become more like Jesus. But on the other hand, Paul doesn't let the other guy off the hook either, does he? He says in verse eight, he, he, he rebukes those who are cheating and doing wrong to your brothers and sisters. There's no excuse here. You can't say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mistreating others. I'm cheating them so that they can become more like Jesus. You know, I'm giving them an opportunity here. Like, I'm the hero. I'm the good guy, right? I'm just doing it for them. <laughs> that doesn't work. Paul, right away, after verse 8, he, he says, Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. There's, there's no excuse at all for mistreating, defrauding, cheating others. James, uh, in his letter, so we're, uh, I'm reading, kind of reading through James with my kids in our bedtime reading. And James, James is just, he's a blunt man, let me tell you. He just tells it like it is. In, in chapter 5, he begins, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. I'm really starting to reconsider how soft I start my sermons. I'm thinking I need to learn something from James here. Listen up, you wicked and adulterous people. Some bad things are, oh man, that's, I just can't do it. I'm a nice Canadian. I just can't do it. But, um, but he, just, he goes like, weep and wail, you rich people, because of what's coming on you. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Scriptures are really clear on this, that your conduct towards those who maybe have lesser status, lesser wealth than you, that especially God cares about. God is watching. God is watching out for the oppressed, for the poor, for the needy, and so his people better as well. So there's no, no excuse here at all. Both sides, again, Paul is saying both, both of you need to repent. Both of you need a change of heart. See, again, if, if we were to look at kind of the overarching relational conflict resolution principle, I'd say this. When you find yourself in a conflict, the first question we often ask is, what is wrong with that person, right? What is their issue? Why are they acting the way they are? I would challenge you to ask instead as your first question, what's in my heart? What in my heart needs to be shifted? needs to be transformed, needs to be challenged. Where, where am I wrong in this? And I, I think if you do that, if you start there, that's gonna go a long ways in terms of bringing restoration to relationships, is if you first say, okay, chances are there's something in me that, that, that's, that's being triggered here, that's being pushed, and, and I, need to, I need to kind of address that with God as well. Now, there's a question before we look at Kind of what Paul says as the, is the solution, as the thing that they should be doing. Uh, little aside, we should probably address the question of whether or not it's ever okay for a Christian to bring another Christian to court. Not that I don't think any of you are like, I really want to sue some people, Pastor. Can you just tell me if I'm allowed to do that? I don't think that's your, your mentality. But it might be a situation where you, you're wondering, is it ever okay given what Paul says here? And I don't, I don't know if it's quite so black and white because, for example, Paul in, in Romans 13 says if you do, and he's saying this to, to Christians, he says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So there is, I think, a God-given place for legal justice in the world. I think God has given courts and governments that authority. And there are probably times where churches have gotten into trouble because they've tried to deal internally with things that really probably should have gone to the courts. And I'm thinking especially of child abuse by clergy over the years. That has given the church a black eye in more than one way. But, but one way is that sometimes those perpetrators have ended up kind of being hidden and, and covered over and, and just kind of moved to a different place. And that's kind of been the version of, of church discipline. It hasn't, been, it hasn't really been brought out in the open before the courts, and maybe it, it should have been, right? And, and, and so I think, I think the bigger question here, the, the bigger issue, again, goes back to the heart. 
if you're ever in a situation where you might be testifying against another brother or sister in court, I think the, the really crucial question is, where is your, your heart in this? What's your motivation? Are you just seeking your own vindication, your own victory to prove yourself, that you're in the, to prove that you're in the right? Are you, are you only seeking financial gain or are you trying to defend the, the, the poor from an unrepentant wrongdoer? Are you, have you gone through the other avenues of conflict resolution? Jesus in Matthew 18, we could have a whole sermon on this, but Matthew 18, Jesus talks about going to that brother first, talking to them before anything else. You know, you've got an issue with somebody, you go to them, you talk to them. If that doesn't work, you bring somebody else. If that doesn't work, bring the elders and so on. But have you gone through those necessary avenues first before bringing it to that larger body? I, th I think all of those are, are factors here. Let's talk, about, let's talk about what Paul says, though, about how they should be dealing with this. He's clearly got an issue with them bringing this to court, trying to resolve this in front of judges, in front of the watching world to see. What he does say is that they should be relying on the wisdom that God gives his people through the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying he really believes that Christians, by virtue of, of being followers of Jesus, that they have the Holy Spirit and that this gives them access to wisdom that the world doesn't have. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things. We have the mind of Christ. I mean, that's a loaded passage and it it does sound almost a little bit elitist and holier than thou, doesn't it? Like Paul is saying, well, if you're a Christian, you, you get things that others don't get. And, and yeah, that is, that is kind of what Paul is saying, but not because Christians are inherently smarter than others. There are dumb Christians, amen? Um, now the thing is, if you, if you do meet, however, if you do meet a follower of Jesus, that's the only thing I could, come on guys, you gotta give me some amens here. I'm just trying here, I'm trying so hard. Um, if you do meet a follower of Jesus who lacks wisdom, I would say that that's probably because they're actually not walking closely in step with the Lord. They're not making room in their lives for the Holy Spirit because Paul is insistent that as a follower of Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore he says you have the mind of Christ. And so when you're in these, these challenging situations, and by the way, it's not just one person, it's, it's the church as a whole. So when you're in these challenging situations, this is why he thinks that, that the church community, that the family of God should be able to resolve these disputes between brothers and sisters because we have this wisdom. But that's not the only reason Paul says that you should be able to rely on, on the community and on the wisdom God has given us. He says you should do this because of who you will be one day. He says this, this line at the beginning, and it, it almost sounds cryptic, right? He says, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How many of you go, no, I did not know that. Yeah, <laughs> I had no idea, Paul, tell me more. 
Paul doesn't really go into a whole lot of detail about this. He just kind of puts it out there. He goes, you guys know this? You know you're going to judge angels? So you should be able to handle trivial earthly matters, no problem. Let's flesh this out a little bit, because there are other scriptures that, that speak to this. So uh, Daniel chapter 7, that's, the, uh, that's in the Old Testament, the Greek version of that passage, Daniel 7.22, uh, sees the Ancient of Days, a title for God, coming, and he gave judgment to the saints of the Most High. Makes it sound like, like judgment is something he gives to the saints in order to do. And, and that's what we see in the New Testament quite clearly. In Revelation 20, John sees thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And then in Matthew 19, and there are a bunch of passages, but we'll just go with these. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But all those passages have in common, two things. One is that they picture this scene at kind of the transition between this world and the forever new earth, God's eternal kingdom. It kind of pictures what happens at that moment. And the second thread we see is that God's people, his saints, are going to somehow participate with him in delivering judgment, in, in assessing what's going to take place, including, apparently, angels. That God's people will participate with God in deciding what will happen to angels, I assume those who have fallen, who have worked against God's purposes. Here, here, here's the principle. I mean, we could probably go into that a lot more, but here's the overarching principle again. We sometimes talk about be who you are. This is like next level. This is be who you will be. It's almost like this life is practice for what we will be doing in eternity. And so Paul says, be who you will be. Be, be now who you will be forever in your relationships. So look at how, how this kind of plays out. We know that in eternity, we are going to be united with our brothers and sisters in worshiping and serving the Lord. So be now who you will be forever. Start orienting your life around that. Be united with your brothers and sisters now because that's what you're going to be doing forever. We know that in eternity, we are going to seek the Lord's face. We're going to see him face to face. We're going to, we're going to long for his glory more than anything else. So be now who you will be forever. Stop orienting your life around money and status and all of those things. Instead, orient your life around the glory of God because that's what you will be doing forever. Practice now. And here, Paul says you know that in eternity, you are going to be entrusted with judgment to be a wise and right judge. And so practice now. Be now who you one day will be. Now, I know as soon as I say that, as soon as, as, soon as we talk about judging, uh, and because this is the whole thing, right? Paul is going, you're bringing this before other judges. You yourself have been entrusted with this. You should be doing this. As soon as we hear that language, we, we kind of, we step back. That, that's a triggering word, isn't it? The word judge, that's a, that's a bad word. That's like the unforgivable sin in our culture. Our culture thinks that's the only verse in the Bible. It's one whole book that just says, do not judge. 
right? A lot of people, that's, that's the only thing that Jesus ever said, according to people in our world. And, and you see this in all kinds of ways. So recently, um, there, there was a whole kerfuffle in the NHL around uh, hockey jerseys. So there were, there were these two brothers for the Florida Panthers, Mark and um, Eric Stahl, and they opted out of a pre-game warm-up because the team was wearing rainbow-themed pride jerseys. And here's what the Stahl brothers said. They, their, their statement, in part, they said, we carry no judgment on how people choose to live their lives and believe that all people should be welcome in all aspects of the game of hockey. Having said that, we feel that by us wearing a pride jersey, it goes against our Christian beliefs. So here they are saying there's an event we feel doesn't line up with our Christian conscience, with the kingdom of God, and so we're opting, we're opting out of this. We carry no judgment. But by the reaction that people had to this, you would think that they had committed the unforgivable sin. I mean, the reaction was, was immense. Uh, a USA Today writer, for example, said these guys deserve every bit of scrutiny they can possibly get. He said, first of all, their statement, the Stalls brother, their statement actually sounds fairly judge-ish, like judgy as hell, like they don't judge this much on American Idol. <laughs> Quite, very talented writer, obviously, good stuff. <laughs> you kind of go, man, like, kind of feels like these two things aren't lining up, right? Here's the thing, though. Ju the, the word judge, the idea of judging at the most kind of basic level is simply assessing what is true or not. What is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is not, right? It's, it's discerning. It's delivering an assessment of those things. And if that's what judging is, then everybody does this all the time. It is 100% unavoidable. You, right now, you're judging me. Right now, you are judging whether what I'm saying is true or not. You are making a discernment about whether this is right or wrong. What I'm saying, that's a judgment. If, how dare you, by the way, judgy judgers. <laughs> I, even, if you, even, if you, even if you try to stay neutral on something, even if you say, no, I have no opinion about something, that itself is a judgment that this thing that you're talking about isn't worthy of making a, a hard and fast decision, that it's not that important or it's not that clear. It's still a judgment statement. So the question is never whether or not we judge. It's on what basis do we make those judgments? Do we make those judgments based on human standards or do we make those judgments based on God's standards that we see in his word, that we receive through the Holy Spirit? Do we make those judgments in conflicts, in relationships, based on what will bring me glory and advance my victory or do I make that judgment based on the kingdom of God and what brings God glory? In short, do I make my judgments in step with the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the one with the Spirit judge, brings judgment, like judges all things. Do we judge by the Spirit or do we judge by the flesh? That, that's really the question here. And what Paul is saying is that Christians, followers of Jesus, like anyone else, when they're in these conflicts, when they're in these relationships, are assessing. They're making discernments about what has happened, about what needs to happen you need to do that by the Holy Spirit. You need to do that by the word of God. You need to do that in accordance with the kingdom of God. And when you do that, then there can be resolution. 
then, then, then things come together. Then there's peace in the body of Christ because you're relying on his wisdom and his standards instead of your own. That make sense? I want to I wrap this up by going to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, because one letter wasn't enough to deal with all their issues. In his second letter, he tells them, and this is a verse that Dan actually quoted earlier during the baptism. He says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone. That old way of dealing with conflicts in relationships, it's gone. You no longer need to seek your own victory to make sure you come out on top, to make sure you're vindicated and proven to be in the right. That old way has died. You're a new creation. You're living for something different. You're living for something better now. And Paul says that all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. See, here's the thing. We had a conflict with God. It was our sin. And it was all on us. Most human relationships, it's kind of a two-way street. We sinned. We rejected our creator, our God, who had made us and given us everything we needed for life. So there was this conflict. And what we see in the gospel is that Jesus suffered for us. Righteous, holy judge, he suffered for us. And by doing that, he removed that barrier, that, that, that thing that stood between us and God. He removed that unilaterally. <laughs> And, and so that the, the way would be open for us to be restored in relationship with God. Jesus took the initiative. He removed that barrier so that we could be reconciled to him. So how can we, in our various conflicts, not lay down our pride? Not lay down this sense of the need for personal advancement. Lay that down because of what Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy Messiah did for us. Lay it down. Lay it down and do whatever you can to bring about restoration in those relationships. I mean, we've come out of COVID and there are, there are all these simmering conflicts still under the surface that exist from that not to mention all the other things, the everyday things in our lives. Marriages are strained, friendships, relationships in the church. It's been a tumultuous few years in a tumultuous world. And so this morning, can I just encourage you? Can I just encourage you to follow the example of Jesus, to lay down your pride, and to do whatever you can to remove that, that barrier so that those relationships can be whole once again, be restored, and the church of Christ can be one united body again. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray for healing. First, God, for those who have, Lord, lived in ways contrary to you and to your kingdom, 
there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a barrier between them and you. And I want to pray for healing in that relationship. I pray, Jesus, that for those who are here this morning, who know that that's them, that they would hear the good news, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross, that you suffered for them, and that you have removed that barrier, that you have reconciled them to yourself. And then I pray, Lord, that you would bring healing in our relationships with one another. You say that because you have reconciled us to yourself, we are now ministers of reconciliation. We have the message of reconciliation. We are showing the world through our relationships who you are and what you have done. So I pray, God, by your power, by the leading of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring healing and restoration to our relationships with one another. I pray for restoration in marriages, in families, in friendships, Lord, I pray for your healing. I pray, Lord, for a softness of heart. I pray that each one in these relationships would recognize, Lord, where they have gone wrong, and that they would repent and confess, and Lord, that there would be forgiveness and reconciliation. I pray that you'd speak to us by your word this morning and bring, bring healing in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.